Would you please stay standing because we're going to read God's word together this morning. I think it's coming up on the board here. There we go. Let's read this together. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Thank you. You may be seated. Letters. Letters. Once upon a time in a galaxy far, far away, people actually wrote letters. They used real ink, beautiful stationery, cursive letters, clearly defined. Teachers in classrooms taught kids how to form the alphabet. Yeah, that thing. You know, ABC, that stuff. On carefully lined pages and explained the difference uh, between a formal letter and friendly correspondence. Yes, we still continue to communicate through writing. But let's be honest. There isn't quite the thrill when you receive a, when you receive a meme or a text on your phone as it is when you go to the mailbox and find an actual handwritten letter in your mailbox. Letters. When's the last time you received an actual letter in the mail? Two weeks ago, I was a recipient of a real, honest-to-goodness letter from a former student of mine. Now, emails and texts are lovely. If you ever decide you want to send me one, I'd go, go for it. I have to admit that receiving that letter in the mail made not just my day, but probably that week. I knew the writer. I'd spent nearly six years mentoring her when she was a school student. And as I read her letter, I knew. I could identify with what she had to say. So this morning, I'm asking that you remember that this book of Colossians is a letter. Who was the writer? Who were the recipients? What's the purpose of Paul's writing? When was it written? All of those basic who, what, why, when, and where things that you might remember from your days in high school writing classes. What do we know about Colossae, this town, and the backstory to Paul's letter to the church there? You know, we've been studying Paul's letter to the church in Colossae for the last five weeks. So let's go back and have a bit of review. Could I have the slide of the map, please? There it is, a glimpse of Paul's world. When I look at this map, I was reminded of some lines from one of my favorite plays. Now, many of you know that I teach theater arts in, in, in school, and I directed high school productions since 1981. Anyhow, a long, long, long time. And one of my favorite plays is Thornton Wilder's Our Town. The play deals with universal themes, community, family, love and marriage, death. 
It's set in a small New England town around 1901. There's a narrator for the play, and he reminds the audience of this. He says, you know, Babylon once had two million people in it, and all we know about them is the names of the kings, some copies of wheat contracts, and contracts for the sale of slaves. Yet, every night, all those families sat down to supper. The father came home from his work. The smoke went up the chimney. Same as here. And even in Greece and Rome, all we know about the real life of the people is what we can piece together out of the poems and comedies they wrote for the theater back then. As we've been studying Paul's letter to the church in Colossae, it may be that we forget that the members of that congregation were, well, just like us. I'm sometimes afraid that if we think about people from the past at all, we think of them as being somewhat different from us. Perhaps we think of them as being not quite as smart, provincial, naive. We forget that they were dealing with major political turmoil, racism, religious persecution, issues, geologic issues like volcanic eruptions and earthquakes, strange occult practices. Pornography was rampant. In fact, You've heard lots of discussions about the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. Did you know that the theater in latter-day Rome was so incredibly pornographic that the government shut down the theaters? Have you watched any TV lately? Have you been to the movies lately? Sorry about that real cinema. You know, what can I say? Uh, please don't forget that the believers in 60 A.D. thought that they were living in the last days, just like many of us do. Perhaps we forget that the city of Colossae was similar to that of Lancaster in size. While Lancaster is known for its rich farming communities, Colossae was known for manufacturing a rich red fabric. And because of its location, they were a direct link between the East and the West, just as Lancaster is a direct link between New York, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, and points West. Because Paul is writing this letter from prison in Rome, we can be fairly certain that he wrote this letter around 60 AD. And based on other passages of scripture and data, Bible historians can safely say that by that time, Paul had been in ministry for about 25 years. And during those 25 years, he had planted several churches and mentored several young men, enabling them to plant churches. One of these young men, Epaphras, is believed to have started this particular church in the city of Colossae. Again, we're a plant church in Lancaster, PA. We're similar to this Colossian church. However, while we know Pastor Kevin and meet with him regularly, 
the Colossian church would definitely have heard of the Apostle Paul, but they'd never met him. They'd never even seen him. This group of believers had heard the gospel and believed through the ministry of Paul's friend Epaphras, who was from the town of Colossae and had founded the church there. Epaphras traveled to Rome to give a report to Paul on what was happening to this young church. And while there, according to Philemon 123, Epaphras becomes Paul's fellow prisoner. That's a lot of review. In the first three verses of Colossians 1, Paul greets and blesses the people of Colossae, and he introduces himself. In the next paragraph are verses 4 to 8, and if you have your Bibles, you can be looking at this. We're not reading them because Pastor Kevin has already talked about these verses. But Paul indicates all the wonderful things he has heard about the Colossians' faith, specifically that they are now believers. And then he follows it up with a prayer for those believers. He prays for wisdom and knowledge for these believers. He prays that they would live good, godly lives, prayers for strength. And interestingly, in verse 11, he prays that they would have the power to patiently endure everything with joy. He prays that they would be light bearers. And then Paul reminds them of the good news, the gospel. God has rescued us because Jesus paid the price to free us. Our sins are forgiven. And if you can recall Kevin's powerful message from two weeks ago in verses 5 through 23, Paul celebrates and lifts up Jesus, our Redeemer, our Savior, our King, God in the flesh, our hope. Which brings me finally to this morning's scripture. Uh, John, can I have the next slide, please? Starts with verse 24 that reads, and this is a mouthful. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of the body which is the church. What? What is lacking in the afflictions of Christ? Kevin assigned me this particular passage, oh, weeks ago, probably a good month and a half. And I have struggled with it ever since. And apparently I'm not alone. Bible expositors and commentators far, 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 far more scholarly than I will ever hope to be have waffled back and forth on what Paul is trying to say here. There are churches that have done series on Colossians like we're currently doing. And they skip over these verses. Yeah, thank you, Kevin. Uh, uh, however... John Piper, in his book, Desiring God, seems to have the best and most concise explanation of this verse. And he states this. Paul's sufferings complete Christ's afflictions not by adding anything to their worth, but by extending them to the people they were meant to save. What is lacking is 
in the afflictions of Christ is not that they're deficient in worth, as though they couldn't sufficiently cover all of our sins, those of us who believe. What is lacking is that the infinite value of Christ's afflictions are not known and trusted around the world. Isaiah 53.5 reminds us, and it speaks of those afflictions. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and with his stripes we're healed. The only thing that is lacking about Christ's affliction is that not Everyone has trusted in Jesus. There are people who are not a part of his body. And Paul is rejoicing that he can participate in whatever it takes to build up the church and make Christ known. But he's also keenly aware that believers are engaged in spiritual warfare. And it would likely get worse. You see, gang, following Jesus isn't for the faint-hearted. Following Jesus is a call to arms. Paul recognized that following Jesus came with a cost. And he would know. Back in January, it was January 3rd, as a matter of fact, I spoke here at the church, and I mentioned this. First of all, remember that Paul is writing this letter from house prison in Rome. And later in, in the uh, book of, of Philemon, we, we understand that Paul is hopeful that he is going to be released and uh, would hopefully uh, meet with the Colossians at some point. Unfortunately, his past experiences wouldn't have given him much cause for hope. Because, why? Five times he was whipped. He was lashed 39 times. The maximum under Roman law was 40 times. Three times he was caned. He'd been stoned. He was in constant danger from unbelievers. And to add insult to injury, he was frequently in danger from those within the churches who might be spreading false teachings. Teachings like Gnosticism, asceticism. Now forget the big terms. You don't need to know them. But let me put these false teachings, four of them, into contemporary terms. Number one, see if you know anybody that thinks like this. If I give up worldly living and I'm very austere, I can make my way to heaven. In other words, Jesus plus my outward appearance of piety equals my salvation. Or how about this teaching, number two? There are other spiritual ways of getting to heaven. There are beings on the same level as Jesus. In other words, Jesus isn't necessarily the only way to heaven. Other religions and leaders have spiritual truths that will lead me to eternity with God. Or perhaps there's this false teaching. 
my intellect is enough. That wouldn't even get me through <laughs> out the door. Uh, my intellect is enough. The intellectual elite would let rationality and logic or non-logic be the guide. How can an intelligent person believe in God? I'm smarter than that. And of course, the granddaddy of all false teachings, by doing the right things, good things, nice things, I can hope that God will allow me into heaven. These are heresies, folks. And they were beginning to make inroads into this little church, this Colossian church, in 60 AD. And they are as much in evidence around the globe as they are in Lancaster County, 2021 AD. I can assure you, if you're a believer, if you stand against these false teachings, you will likely suffer along with Paul. No wonder he prayed for the Colossian church in verse 11 that they would joyfully endure, that they would stand firm in God's truth. Now, if you've been following along in your Bibles, you may have discovered that Colossians 1, 24 to 26 is one incredibly long sentence. Let's pick up where I left off. John, the next slide. I became a minister to the church according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. The term minister, ministry. All too frequently, we think of minister as being a proper noun. The minister. The minister. Kevin Green is our minister. Well, yes, Kevin does minister to us. However, he's also been called and given a special gift, that of being a pastor, a shepherd to the flock. We, as believers, are all called to ministry. We don't have time this morning, but if you think about jot down Ephesians 4, 11 to 13, and read it this afternoon. The term minister or ministry comes from the Greek diakonos, and all too often when we think of minister, we think of it as being some sort of elevated position. Diakonos, however, is usually translated as servant or serving. The idea might better be that a minister is that of a waiter in a restaurant seeking to help, to assist, to make the dining experience better, to serve the meal itself. Again, keep reminding yourself that the book of Colossians is a letter. It opens with a greeting and salutation. It continues with acknowledging the positive contribution of the recipients, and it blesses them for their faithfulness. It's my understanding that this morning, as we're going through these many weeks of looking at Colossians, 
It's my understanding that these particular verses, 24 to 26, serve as a bridge from this greeting and salutation to the main body of the, let, of the letter to Colossians, which is coming up in the weeks ahead. And it's in this particular passage that he kind of teases us with this idea that something has been hidden for a very, very long time. A mystery. Anyone here love a good mystery? Yay! If I'm binging a TV show or reading a novel, many, many times the genre will be that of mysteries. I love trying to unravel the secrets prior to the end of the book or an episode. As a minister, diaconos, Paul is about to serve a meal. And what a meal he is about to serve. The mystery that mankind had been waiting for since Adam and Eve in the garden. The promise of someone who would come and destroy evil. And there are clues abounding throughout scripture uh, about something or someone that was better than the law. Clues and illustrations in the design of a tabernacle, of a temple. Something special prophesied. Poems written about indicating a savior. And finally in Colossians 1.27, Paul said, and let me paraphrase, Jesus Christ is the hope of mankind, both to the Jew and underscore Gentile. Jesus Christ, the hope of mankind, no matter who you are, where you're from, Jesus Christ is the answer. He is our living hope. That means, folks, that this letter to the Colossians could just as easily have been addressed to the Connectus Church in Lancaster, PA. The gospel, the good news is Jesus, our hope, the only hope for mankind. We are Colossae. We are Ephesus. We are the church in Corinth. We are all, these letters are addressed to us folks. Yesterday was a very strange day for me. I had not only one, but two funerals back to back. Both of the deceased were believers. Two individuals who I admired and respected for their godly lives. And as I considered their passing, I was reminded of John 14. Just prior to his arrest, Jesus comforts his disciples with these words. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives it do I give to you. Don't let your heart be troubled. Don't be afraid. Paul's climactic statement that bridges the opening of this letter to the main body of the letter is simply this. Jesus is our. Jesus is the believer's hope. I could sit at those funerals yesterday and rejoice knowing that those saints were in the presence of their Savior. We all have that to look forward to. Letters. Receiving letters can be exciting. After my mom passed away in 2019, we found several boxes of mementos. Some of them had letters in them that she had saved and cherished. In, if, in fact, God's word, this little book, if, in fact, God's word is a letter to mankind. 
I wonder how much I treasure and cherish it. I wonder if I'm helping complete Christ's afflictions by extending the hope of Jesus found in this book to the world, to the people he died to save. God's word, it's a personal letter to each of us. And as I prepared this message this morning, I turned around to my bookcase, which was behind me, and I found five separate Bibles. I have no idea how many I might find under my bed or in a spare room. I know I have some in my office at school. And I hate to admit it, many of them, perhaps most of them, are covered in dust. Yet with the, within the covers are God's words. A personal message to me, to us. Can you imagine what it would be like to be, be presented with a letter from God for the first time? I want to show you this morning a group of people who received God's letters in their own language for the very first time. Could we run the, the film, please?
Father God, as I watched this, as I've watched it time and again, I recognize how much you love us, how much you care for us, and how frequently I forget to even look at this love letter that you have given us. How much I take this for granted when there are men and women, boys and girls, not just around the globe, but in my own backyard, who have yet to hear Jesus, thank you for your salvation that you've given to us. Thank you for the cost that you carried on your shoulders. And I pray that as we leave here this morning, that we would go with a, just a renewed desire to know you, to love you, to serve you. Father, I do want to pray for Jordan and Marcus as they travel this week. Go with them. Use them in the lives of these uh, individuals who play rugby in Kenya. And for each of us as we begin this new week, that you would use us in our own part of the globe. Thank you, Jesus.
We love you. Amen.